Welcome to From the Bridge, the inaugural launch of the USS Fishbait. I'm your captain and host, Rick Jones, and appreciate you joining us today. We've got a great show today with the themes of fans, tribes, lifestyles, and value. Like most of you, I belong to many tribes. As a young boy, I became a Georgia Tech fan. My dad had grown up a Tech fan and had actually gone to Tech uh, at one time. Uh, And as a small boy, I had the chance to go to many Tech games at Historic Grant Field, and I became a lifelong Tech fan. I remember one story. I must have been six or seven in the early 1960s, and Georgia Tech was playing nationally ranked Tennessee at Grant Field, and my dad said, let's go down to the game. We didn't have any tickets. Um, And so we waited and we waited and we waited. And right before kickoff, my dad found a guy, scalper, and said, uh, how how much are the tickets? And the guy said, I've got two on the 50-yard line, and they're $50 a piece. Well, this was the time that the tickets were $5 each. My dad was a federal investigator, and he opened his wallet, and the first thing that scalper saw was the big badge. And my dad said, how much were those again? And the guy said, their face value, $5. <laughs> and so we, we got in with uh, 50-yard line seats for a nationally ranked game at, uh, at face value. Um, it's not easy to be a Georgia Tech fan, especially in a state where the Georgia Bulldogs are so dominant. Uh, there's an interesting story I heard the other day. There was a, a nasty divorce case in Atlanta. Uh, a couple were splitting up, and they were competing for who's going to get custody of their nine-year-old son. So the judge asked the boy, um, son, do you want to live with your daddy? And the boy said, no, not a chance. He said, well, why not? He said, well, my daddy beats me. The judge was very dismayed, and he said, well, I, I guess you want to live with your mama then, don't you? And he said, oh, no, no, my mama beats me. And the judge said, well, son, where do you want to live? He said, well, I want to live with Georgia Tech. They don't beat nobody. Um, In spite of all that, uh, I'm still a a Georgia Tech fan. I'm all in on the Georgia Tech tribe. I'm also a major parrot head. I first saw Jimmy Buffett at the Great Southeast Music Hall in Lindbergh Plaza in Atlanta, Georgia, in the summer of 1971, and I became an instant fan. I now have all of Jimmy's records. I read, I've read all his books. I listen regularly to his Margaritaville channel on Sirius XM. I've seen him many times in multiple cities, including just last weekend on the final day of the 50th anniversary of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival at the fairgrounds in New Orleans. I tend to quote Jimmy Buffett a lot. Things like changes in latitude, changes in attitude or I'm growing older, but not up, or my favorite, life is like a tire swing. I'm one of Jimmy's boys. Speaking about music, our opening song each week is from the late, great General Norman Johnson and the chairman of the board with a beach music classic, Gone Fishing. I'm also a huge beach music fan and consider myself a member of that tribe too. With sponsorship, Brands want to reach tribes. The only reason a brand will pay to sponsor a property is because of the children, the fans. They want to reach the perfect affinity group, members 
of the perfect tribe. My former boss, the talented Chuck Jarvie, once gave me the best definition of an affinity group. Chuck says an affinity group is a group of people who will suspend rational behavior in the pursuit of their passions. Wow. Suspend reality to pursue their passions. Those are the tribes that brands covet. Those are the real fans. Speaking of Chuck Jarvie, he's always been a futurist about what's next in marketing and sponsorship. And we hope to have him on our program soon. He's one of the wisest men I know. For each and every property, and what I mean by property, y'all, is I mean the team or the school or the league or the conference, the organization, the festival or the fair, the athlete, the charity, the museum, you name it. For each and every property, here's a reality. Fans pay for everything. Let me repeat that. Fans pay for everything. If there are no fans watching the games on TV, there are no TV rights fees. No fans wearing team jerseys, no licensing revenues. No fans buying tickets, no ticket revenues, no parking fees, no concessions, no novelty sales. In other words, you got nothing. So everything, and I mean everything, must be about the fan for both the property and the sponsor. The foundation of an effective sponsorship is an equal triangle. Here's what I'd like you to do. Right where you're sitting right now, draw an equal triangle. On one point of the triangle, write down your event, team, or other property. On another point, write down the name of one of your sponsors or the name of your company if you are actually doing the sponsorship. And then on the third point, write down the fans. Effective sponsorship must work equally for each party, for the property, for the sponsor, and for the fans. So if you run an event or a team or a convention or a charity, what are you doing for your fans? Or if you're a brand that sponsors something, what are you creating and funding that enhances that fan's experience? And more importantly, are you getting the credit by both the event and the fans for bringing them that experience? Because if you're not, you've wasted your money. Let me give you an example of one thing we get to be a part of. Our client, Warner Ladder, provides the ladders they use to cut down the nets at the Final Four for both the men's and women's NCAA tournaments. As the official ladder of March Madness, Warner provides custom ladders for the teams that win first the regionals and then the team that wins the national championship at the Final Four. Firstly, we supply joy, real joy, to the winning team, their head coach, their players, assistant coaches and managers, and their fans. It's about the culmination of their journey to the championship, and they are reminded about the journey as they climb the ladder to cut down the nets. But secondly, we do lots of other things for fans. Through our media buys, we tell great stories of coaches who have climbed the ladder. 
We've even done a series on the history of net cutting. We've reminded fans that James Naismith, who invented the game of basketball, actually used the ladder when they first played the game. If you may remember, James Naismith nailed up a peach basket 10 feet high on the balcony of a gymnasium, and each time you shot the ball into the basket, you had to get in a ladder to go up and get it out. Finally took him a few years to realize it might make more sense to cut out the bottom of the peach basket. We also take the ladders on media tours, and we let members of the media climb the ladder and do their broadcasts from up there. And more importantly, we let fans climb the ladder for photos of them pretending to cut down the nets. That becomes a lifetime memory uh, that usually appears somewhere on Instagram. Now it's time for the Tuesday tip. I travel a lot, and I get $2 bills to use to tip folks. People remember you when you do something a little different, and a $2 bill is different. Clemson University fans travel with Tiger Paul stamped $2 bills when they go to bowl games, so the merchants in that town will remember them. It also helps to win national championships, which Clemson has done two out of the last three years. Speaking about both winners and engaging with fans, our guest angler for today is one of my two partners at our firm, Engagement Partners, David Millay. David is one of the leading consultants in fan behaviors and ways to enhance brand experiences through a culture of fan service. Let's welcome David now. Hey, David, welcome to From the Bridge. Thanks for having me, Rick. Appreciate uh, appreciate the time and uh, really looking forward to our conversation. Got my coffee and uh, we're all fueled up. I've got my coffee too. Uh, early mornings, you always got to have a little cup of java. Hey, David, give us a little of your background, you know, maybe starting with where you, uh, where you grew up and a little bit about your background. For sure. Um, so I, I grew up in Orlando, Florida. Um, and what took us there actually was my it really shaped a lot of my professional career now looking back at it. Um, and that was that my dad took a job with the Walt Disney company. Um, and he was really starting up the ESPN wide world of sports complex back then it was Disney's wide world of sports complex. Um, and so really growing up, it was this constant infusion of Disney and sports and the marriage of those two worlds, um, and, you know, I learned a lot from, from my dad growing up and in terms of what to do and how, how to act and, uh, especially in that professional setting. I mean, the, the running joke was always that we'd be in airports and he'd be bending down, picking up trash. And it was so embarrassing back then. Um, but as we, we look at it now, right. I mean, having worked for Disney, uh, that is just so ingrained in us. Uh, and there were so many lessons that I think he took from the, the Walt Disney company that translated into our lives growing up as kids. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, definitely a, an interesting time growing up in Orlando. Well, w- did you know from an early age that, that you maybe wanted to work at Disney? No, I absolutely thought there was no way I was ever going to work at Disney. I, I was so jaded and, um, 
I had been to Disney so many times that I never thought I wanted to be there uh, coming back. I loved it, but it was just, it, it didn't have the same allure for me that it did for a lot of other people. So actually leaving college, I thought I wanted to go work at a big Fortune 500 corporation and be, you know, start as a, an entry level business analyst, work my way up, really get a deep business acumen and then go work at an athletic department. Never thought I was going to end up back at Disney. Well, what brought you there? Um, well, this, this kind of perfect role opened up after I graduated from Notre Dame where, you know, I was looking at going to Target or 3M or a bunch of other Minneapolis or, or Chicago companies. Um, but this perfect role opened up at a place called Disney Institute, which was and is still the basically the external training and advisory services arm of the Walt Disney Company. So what that means is a CEO basically comes to Magic Kingdom and says, oh, my gosh, the customer service is so great. They've got vice presidents picking up trash right uh, on Main Street USA. How do we get that kind of culture in our company? And so that's what we would go do is we would go help organizations with leadership, culture, customer service, kind of showing them the Disney way. Um, so right about the time I was graduating school, they had an opening where they realized within their business that a sports organization is a lot like Disney's parks and resorts, where if you're pulling up to Soldier Field here in Chicago, you're parking your car, people are taking your tickets, you're, you, you're bought, you bought them ahead of time somewhere. If you're coming in from out of town, you're staying in a hotel, there's retail, there's food and beverage, there's third party workers. There were so many similarities between our businesses. Disney just did it a thousand times better every single day on multiple continents with a much bigger mass scale of, of people. And it was a lot more consistent as well. So we helped sports organizations. And what I got brought in to do was to help kickstart uh, our, our ventures into the sports industry. So it was kind of this perfect role of and, and almost a callback to what my dad did growing uh, all through my time growing up, which was this marriage between sports and business uh, and this marriage between sports and Disney's more specifically. And so I was getting to do that, but in a different way. What did you like best about working at the Disney Institute? And conversely, what would you like least about it? You know, I, for me, as I, as I mentioned, I mean, I had kind of lost the allure of Disney because I was just around it so much. It was commonplace for me. Um, so that I would say was never the big draw. Although my love for Disney intensified a thousandfold once I started working there. Uh, you know, I always had people say, Oh, does the magic rub lose? Does, do you lose the magic when you can see behind the scenes? And from my point of view, it just got a hundred times better because I saw, wow, the company's way smarter than everybody actually even thinks they are. Um, because I got to see all those things behind the scenes. So, um, that was, that was definitely one great part, but for me, the real great part about it was when I first started there, it was kind of like the wild, wild West. We were, we were almost like a startup, but with giant name brand recognition and giant resources behind us. So I remember my leader, when I first came in said to me, Hey, look, there, we've really got a, a gray playing field in front of us. As long as you're helping us make money and drive impact for clients, that's all we really care about. Go innovate and go try new things. And that is hands down. That was the best part for me is that we got to try things left and right. And we had the resources to do it. So it was, 
this almost again, like a mini startup. Uh, so that part was awesome. Um, you asked what part did I not like as much? And I think over time, as we grew and almost literally grew our revenue a hundred percent in the first three years that I was there or four years that I was there, um, people around the company started to notice. And anytime people in a big corporation start to notice what you're doing, everybody now starts wanting a say in things. So the innovation aspect of it was lost. Um, and maybe not completely certainly, but, um, for the most part, what they would see happening was as we were growing, they wanted to really make sure that we were delivering consistent product. And by doing that, they kind of put in all these dummy proof processes. And by putting in these dummy proof processes, only dummies really wanted to work there. And, and that's an exaggeration, but a lot of smart people ended up leaving because that innovation aspect that so much of us loved was gone um, or, or certainly diluted. You know, I've uh, been friends with your dad for a long, long time, and we had always talked about having the chance to work together. And and one of the great joys of my career has been us putting together uh, this new agency, Engagement Partners. What What's Engagement Partners really all about? So engagement partners, uh, you know, it came out of a few different conversations and, and this is, you know, a, a whole, this could be a whole episode in and of itself. Right. Um, but really engagement partners is all about helping athletic departments and sports organizations become more customer centric, um, or in our words, more fan centric. Right. Um, so, so really from my point of view, all three of us had different different paths to coming to seeing why engagement was, was really necessary. Um, but from my point of view at Disney Institute, we had a lot of clients that loved our work that we were doing with them. And they said, okay, well, we want to go deeper. Talk to us about ticket pricing, help us with wayfinding through our stadium, right? Help us from, a building experiences, help, help us bring our heritage and traditions to life with storytelling. And those were all things that I knew all the people that could do that from my time at Disney, but that's not what Disney Institute did. Um, and that wasn't a, a, a part of the business that Disney wanted to explore. Um, so I knew that there was a, a business case for it, uh, that people in the industry wanted that type of, of help and assistance and guidance. Um, and nobody was offering it. So between the, you know, Rick, between you, me and Mike, right, we, we all brought different skill sets to the table um, that said, hey, we can holistically as a group really focus on different elements that will help an, an organization become more customer centric. You know, in this inaugural session of uh, From the Bridge, we, we've spent a lot of time, you know, talking about fans, uh, that fans really do pay for for literally everything in the sports and entertainment industry. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about fans. You do a lot with fan personas. You know, what are fan personas and, and, and why are they important? So, so great question. Um, I, I think fan, fan personas in and of itself is, is part of a much bigger system of being customer centric, right? Um, where, at its core, being customer centric is about creating value for your fans. And that is what you do as a business. You're focused on constantly creating value, but it's tough to create value unless you know specifically who those fans are. 
If you don't, otherwise you're stuck in this trap of how can I sell more tickets at a higher price so that I can continue making money. And you're, instead of creating value, you're trying to sell instead of creating opportunities to buy, you're trying to create, you're you're trying to shove things down people's throats. And as a salesperson, right, everybody knows that that is, you always want to create a situation where people want to buy. Um, but it's really tough to do that unless you have a full firm grasp of who your customers are. Um, so when we think about fan personas, it's really about customer personas. Um, the way that, the way that we kind of do them and that we approach them is based on this, something that we, something that's called the, the jobs to be done theory that was popularized by Clayton Christensen, who's, a professor at Harvard business school. Um, and not, not originally created by him, but popularized by him. But it's this theory that a customer hires your product or service because they're looking for a job to be fulfilled or a job to be done. So if they go to the supermarket because they're trying to get groceries, the job that they're trying to fulfill is they've got to provide for their family and put food on the table, right? Literally, they quite literally have mouths to feed. So they are going to your, they're, they're hiring your supermarket to help them prepare dinner, right? Um, but when you start thinking about it bigger than that, if you say, hey, as a supermarket, we're helping you prepare dinner or create a, an opportunity for your family to come together after their long day and have conversations. You're now not just selling food. You can now sell a whole wider variety of things, uh, that fulfill that job to be done. So as we think about fan personas and customer personas, it's that, that same kind of mindset. So when we look at it, we're really taking a very, very hyper-specific, uh, fan, persona, if you will. So we're saying, uh, Joe is a 28 year old millennial. He graduated from this university. He doesn't live in the state. So he's got to travel back for games. What is, what are his jobs to be done? And when you think about it, you're looking at, all right, what are the pains gains and those jobs? So the pains are what makes Joe unhappy in life? What the gains are, what makes him happy and the jobs to be done are what are the things that he's actively looking to be filled, right? Um, and, and as a, as a university then, or a sports team, what you've got to do is take a look at it and say, okay, how can we as a brand make Joe happy, remove things from Joe's life that makes him unhappy? And how can we play a bigger role in his life and help him fulfill his goals and dreams and those jobs to be done? If you're looking at it from that approach, you're now going to be in this value creation mindset and your actions will follow as opposed to just saying, well, how can I sell him tickets in a better way? You know, we, we often use the term, are you a drip, <laughs> which stands for are you data rich and insight poor? I think a lot of times people have the data about their fans and their fan personas. They just don't know what to do with it. Maybe it's a lack of, of wisdom. Um, how do, how do you how do you you know create opportunities for you know your clients to be to be wiser yeah um so that's a that's a big question um but i mean from a from a a bigger holistic perspective like you said there there definitely is that data on campus um the problem is is how widely shared is that data um and do your people even know that that data exists? Um, because a lot of times I think 
people one ask because because departments are so siloed a lot of times somebody's job is one thing but they have data sitting in their department that might not help them with their specific function but it would help three other departments and because they have that data sitting there they're not sharing it because in their mind it's not that important so what has to be done and what we end up doing with our clients a lot of times is is helping them see what is this bigger shared organizational goal and helping leaders guide their teams to place just as much importance, if not more, on the large shared common goals as they do on the individual team functional goals. Um, so I would say that's that's the first part of it. Well, one final question. Um, can you really train organizations to be more fan focused. Um, so the word uh, the word training, I think, it's misused a lot um, in in the sports organization or in the sports industry, if you will. Um, a lot of times when people think of training, they think of a two day session or a rally or something or other. Um, but when you think about training, I mean, think about it from a sports team perspective. Training is everything from the way that you eat to the way that you work out. How often are you working out? It's weightlifting. It's watching film. It's all these different things that come into basically everything that you're doing leading up to the way that you play the game. Um, so when I think about training, um, I, I hate thinking about it as, hey, we're going to come in there and we're going to teach you a bunch of things and then you're going to go walk away and suddenly do things differently for the rest of your life. No, I mean, the reality is, you're going to walk out of that room after a training and you'll feel great, but you're going to get back to your email and you've got a hundred emails that you've missed over the last two hours. And suddenly you forget everything that you just learned. So in my mind, it's much less about training and much more about developing habits. Um, and, and that comes through different systems and processes that have to be reinforced. So when we, I think as engagement, from our perspective, it's not that we're necessarily training organizations, but it's that we're helping them build better habits and helping put different systems and processes in place so that they can go deliver themselves that, that better, um, customer experience and really become customer centric as a company or as an organization. David, those are great insights. Uh, how can folks listening today, uh, find you and follow you? Uh, yeah, so I'm on Instagram pretty often and Twitter every day, um, and LinkedIn as well. Those three platforms are the best. Um, and on all three, I'm at David Malay. I think Instagram might be at David dot Malay. Um, but that's M I L L A Y. Um, so yeah, it would keep up with us, uh, posting a lot about sports and business and game of Thrones most likely, but yeah. Hey, pal, many thanks for joining us today and sharing your thoughts on fan engagement. Appreciate you having me, Rick. Our final segment is called On the Road with Rick. Each week, I'll tell you about a terrific place to eat and what to get from there. One of my favorites is Woodman's of Essex on Cape Ann in Massachusetts. It's a roadhouse kind of a place, right on a salt marsh. You get in one of three lines. The first line is the outdoor line to pick out the lobster you want. The second line is the line for fried seafood and chowder. And then there's a line for beer, wine, and soft drinks. 
So what do you eat? Well, really, you eat everything. But the best things are their fried whole belly clams. They claim to have invented the fried clams back in the 1920s when they ran out of fish and potatoes. I've eaten a lot of fried clams in a lot of places, but these are simply the best. Speaking of the best, thank you for joining me today. Tell your friends and colleagues you can find us each week from the bridge. We'd love to hear your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can reach us directly at rick at fishbaitmarketing.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review. We started today's session with stories of Jimmy Buffett. We'll close with one of my favorite Buffett songs and lines. It's been a lovely cruise. See you next week.